Greetings everyone. This is uh, Canadian Meets the South, episode 13, I believe. Today I'm reviewing the book Edge of the Precipice by uh, Robert V. Remini. <laughs> I was blanking on his name for a bit. But this book uh, details the Compromise of 1850, and some of the events that led up to it. Um, and I guess you can say the, the main guy is Henry Clay. And it really talks about um, some of the uh, some things that he accomplished, such as the Compromise Tariff of 1833, which was towards the end of the nullification crisis, and the Compromise of 1820, um, which was um, which dealt with Missouri's entry into the Union. Um, it really contrasted the views of Calhoun, who was a Southern states' rights nullifier, and Henry Clay. Now, initially, Calhoun and Clay were, you could say, um, voted for the same thing. They were both war hawks during the War of 1812, and Calhoun supported Henry Clay's American system in, back in 1816. He supported the high tariff, the internal improvements, and the bank, the second bank of the United States. Those two were signed, the, the high tariff of 1816 and the, um, and the second bank of the United States were signed by James Madison, but he vetoed the bonus bill the day before he left office and what I find interesting is well well this isn't really covered in the book but Calhoun wanted to override Madison's veto on the bonus bill but you know later he he does condemn the American system of Henry Clay which is you know really what the arch-federalist Alexander Hamilton supported. Um, Henry Clay, you could say, was a Southerner, and Remini really talks about how he was against the expansion of, of slavery. This was, this like, his, his eyes, I guess, on the prize of the American system was to ally himself with the Northerners who, who uh, wanted, who also wanted this American system, and the 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 slave issue was a wedge issue. Like the North wanted to agitate on slavery to separate the West from the South, so that the West wouldn't join the southern voting bloc, like the western territories, 
which would become states, wouldn't join the, the, vote, the Southern Voting Bloc in Congress. Um, what else can I say? So when it came to the 1820, uh, Henry Clay did broker that compromise. The Missouri was applying for statehood and it was going to be a slave state. So to balance it out, I guess, Maine, which was originally a part of Massachusetts, also joined the Union as a free state. And but what I found interesting was after, well, during that time, um, the Missouri wanted to discriminate against free blacks entering the state, and Henry Clay told them they, that they couldn't do that. And you know, I found that that's actually interesting because several years later, free blacks were were banned from several states, including Illinois. Um, John Logan, my God, who later became, who he was in the Illinois legislature and later became a union general. And then after that, the vice presidential candidate in 1884 for the Republican Party, he was a vicious white supremacist and he helped push for the legislation to ban blacks from entering Illinois. Of course, this is after Henry Clay died. Like the, he, John Logan pushed for this in 1853, and, you know, John Logan has a memorial to him, and you know how he... I'm recording this June 1. Yesterday was Memorial Day, or should I say the day before? I, I, we don't celebrate that in Canada, I'm sorry. But I found it interesting that the Northerners were, Clay and as well as the Northerners were not happy with Missouri restricting the entry of free blacks into their state. But later on, several years later, they would do the same thing. I, I, I saw the hypocrisy in that. But uh, moving on, Remini covers the Tariff of Abominations, and he says that um, the Compromise Tariff, well, he explained the Compromise Tariff this way, the um, it was to give time um, for Oh, I'm blanking out here, but um, it was originally supposed to be seven years, but then I think it went, it ex it was extended to nine or ten years. And one side wanted time, and the other wanted, uh, as in the, the South wanted time, I believe, time away from, time to build up their economy. While the North wanted some protection, of course. And this was a compromise that Clay and Calhoun had to work out. And Clay, like, I don't remember in this book, but in 
John C. Calhoun, American Portrait by Margaret L. Mead. Clay said that he that Calhoun owed his the the, the continuance of his career took to Clay because of that compromise. But uh, uh, with those two compromises in mind, I'm sure maybe there were some other ones, but those were the big ones. The, com- the Missouri Compromise of 1820 and the Compromise and the, the Tariff of 1833. The Remini was saying the that afterwards the shift they shifted less towards economics, which I don't believe is true. Like, Remini is saying that, but but there were still tariff battles after that. There was the Tariff of 1842, the Black Tariff of 1842, unfortunately signed by John Tyler. And then the Walker Tariff of 1846, signed by Polk. And then the Tariff of 1857, which was... Okay, like, the, the Black Tariff raised the tariff. Um, The Walker Tariff reduced it. And then the tariff of 1857, signed by Franklin Pierce, lowered it to its lowest point ever. And then, of course, Buchanan, in uh, 1861, signs the Morrill Tariff, which more than doubles the tariff. But those last two tariffs, the tariff of 1857 and the Morrill Tariff, come after. After uh, the Compromise of 1850. So certainly the, the tariff war was still ongoing after the tariff of 1833, the compromise tariff of 1833. But moving on to the the main part of the story of Edge of the Precipice, you have uh, the, the issue is California entering the Union and then a bunch of other issues uh, combined with it. And Henry Clay was the one um, who was making it, who wanted a compromise. And what I found interesting is the, I guess the main bad guy here, like portrayed in this book by Remini, was President Zachary Taylor. Uh, The people in his administration thought that Henry Clay was jealous of, of Taylor because Taylor had won the Whig nomination and ultimately the presidency, while Clay had failed to do that, to win the presidency. And Clay um, was trying to save the Union. Now, what's interesting about Taylor was that many Southern Democrats voted for him, not, not his, not his son-in-law, um, uh, Jefferson Davis, well, his former southern son-in-law, but his uh, because you know his son-in-law was uh a Democrat and his advisors were Whigs. That's why Davis refu- did not want to support his former father-in-law, even though he loved him. But um. Davis, although they were very cordial with each other and they were invited to White House dinners back when Zachary Taylor was still alive. But Zachary Taylor is like considered, like I guess, somewhat of a villain in this uh, book because 
he wasn't really in favor of any compromise. He just wanted California to join. And he, if Texas had threatened secession, if would secede, he would send the troops. And unfortunately, that's how it seemed to be. Even though Zachary Taylor was wasn't really ideological, he also cared about the union. But he would, he wasn't interested in compromise. He wasn't interested in caring for the sectionalist fights between the North and South. And some of the Southerners who supported him started thinking that maybe it wasn't such a good idea to support him. And the Nashville Convention was called up, called by Mississippi like in 1849, and it actually happened in 1850. Um, and it was, yeah, it was called during, called for by Mississippi during Zachary Taylor's presidency. So it was clear that he wasn't going to favor one section over the other. He just wanted California to be in the union, to, to join the union. And he didn't want any other compromise measures in it. And... Um, that being said, he did tell Polk that maybe if California and Oregon left the Union, um, that would be okay. But he, sh he surely would not have let Texas out of the Union, well, most likely. Um, not after all the fighting he's, he had done for Texas, partly because of Texas and the Mexican-American War. But he opposed the, you could say, he parts of the compromise. At first, it was going to be an omnibus bill, which includes several things, such as uh, settling the border between New Mexico and Texas, um, getting a hold of Texas's debt, when, back when it was a separate republic, um, allowing Utah which was, um, which was run by Mormons. Um, I forgot what it was called back then, but um, allow that as a territory and New Mexico, of course, and the fugitive slave, a, st a stronger fugitive slave law. And uh, um, the the omnibus was uh, unraveled afterwards and. It was joked that, um, that I forgot how it was unraveled, how it fell apart. But at the end, only the the uh, the Utah bill was part was left in the compromise. But the thing, the saving grace of the compromise was actually was according to Remini, the um. Zachary Taylor dying so that Millard Fillmore would come and replace him. Now, um, it talked a little bit about <clears throat> Henry Foote and, and uh, Thomas Benton, Thomas Hart Benton, how there was tension between them and how Calhoun had died. Thomas Hart Benton well, this is not in the book, but Thomas Hart Benton really didn't like Calhoun. Uh, Calhoun, like, 
Benton was more was also like okay with restricting slavery in, in the territories, even though he was a slaveholder himself. He was a unionist, you know, and but loyal to to Jackson. Me, meanwhile, Calhoun was once Jackson's vice president, and then he became bitter enemies with Jackson. Um, then there was with Foot. Uh, there was the the relationship with Foot. Foot, like this is not in the book, but F I read uh, like on a website. Foot had asked Calhoun after Calhoun had said only the North can save the Union, and there cannot be any compromise. Um, because um, um, and Foot had said, "Why didn't you tell me any of this?" And then Calhoun said said something along the lines of. Or do you think you're special? I didn't tell anyone in advance of this. Foote was uh, a Southern Whig and also supposed to, supposedly a moderate. On, so, like, I mean, if he's a Southern Whig, he wouldn't have been too strong on states' rights. But like at at that time, right? And he favored, you know, the early in his career, he had favored central bank and the high tariff just like Henry Clay, and he had supported Zachary Taylor in 1848. But Foote um, um, and Benton were almost got into a, into a really um, bad argument, and Foote pulled out his pistol, and, and Benton said, uh, shoot me, basically. Like, he, he called, he said, he, and he you know, showed his chest, but, um, um, there was no bloodshed, but they were, it was really bad, and these were both supposedly moderate Southerners, but they disagreed on the compromise, because Benton had said that California should be admitted into the, into the Union without any compromise, or at least first without a compromise, and and Foote didn't didn't agree with that, and and believe that if if California comes in, then there will be no compromise compromise afterwards. And he had mocked Benton for for being in love with his son-in-law, who was from California, John C. Fremont, who would later be the eighteen fifty six GOP nominee, and then afterwards a Union general. Um, but, um, well, let's get back to Clay. So, um, after, so he, although he was the, the chief guy responsible for the omnibus, it died. The, the omnibus became unraveled. And then afterwards, Clay, afterwards, it what, who came to the rescue, um, uh, uh, Stephen Douglas from Illinois, and he he sp split up the compromise into I think six or five bills, and each so that each senator could vote for however he wanted for a particular bill, and then they all somehow magically passed. But only four of four senators, including Sam Houston from Texas, um, so actually voted for all four, all five of them, while as well, and then 
five, well, all six of them, and then five of them were voted by another seven, and including Douglas. But Douglas wasn't present for I think the Future of Slave one. And Jefferson Davis, you could say, was labeled as an ultra, an ultra states rights guy, even though he was ultra, but he and he was friends with Calhoun, but he was not a nullifier. So he was not like, you could say, the fire-eating nullifier that someone like Th Thomas Barnwell Rhett would be from South Carolina or James Henry Hammond or some other. Most of them, like, when you think fire-eater, you think of Calhoun and then the his followers from South Carolina. But there were some other fire-eaters from outside California. And then on the other side of the spectrum was William Seward. And he gave, in 1850, he gave the higher law speech in which he said that there is a higher law. The uh, God was more important than the Constitution, essentially. And people did not like that he was bringing religion into this polit political discussion. And he was on the other side, the, the ultra-sectionalist for the North, he, as a, a Northern Whig, like the, um, but it became clear after the compromise that the Northern and the Southern Whigs were not gonna, were eventually gonna split, but it, it only happened after, uh, Clay and Webster were dead in 1852. Like, they would split in 1854 because of the the uh, Kansas-Nebraska bill. Now, um, before I get to that, um, I also want to recall in 1848, the, after the election, there, this was the first time in which only a plurality had voted for the speaker, Howard uh, uh, Cobb. He was a Democrat, I believe. And it was partly because the Whigs... Um, the Southern Whigs refused to vote for a Northern Whig who, um, unless the Northern Whig would condemn the Wilmot Proviso. And if you don't know this, the Wilmot Proviso had, was, well, it kept passing the House year after year, but it was, it died in the, kept dying in the Senate. The Wilmot Proviso by David Wilmot, Pennsylvania Democrat and later Republican, uh, Free soiler and then Republican, like a free soil Democrat. Like, I'm not sure if he actually officially joined, but he was like free soil in ideology and a big racist too, <laughs> um, big white supremacist. He, he, he said that all the territory claimed from Mexico would be, um, would be free. Like that was basically, um, what the Wilmot Proviso said, and this was obviously f for sectionalism, because the the free states wanted more power, while the um, in the Congress, while as and I guess also in the Electoral College, while as the North, while as the South wanted their property rights respected, so that Southerners with prop with slave property could go into the the, the South, and then obviously. This is, uh, it's not just property rights, it's, it's, uh, power. 
well, political and economic power because whoever the Western states, the territories which would become states would, would uh, side with as a, in a voting bloc would help shape the economics of the country, um, namely the American system. And you could see already the fracturing of the Whigs, how the, the Southern Whigs refused to support a Northern Whig who wouldn't uh, condemn the Wilmot Proviso. Now, um, in 1854, of course, when Clay is dead, Alexander H. Stevens claims credit for, for the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska House in the, in the House of Representatives, while um, Douglas was, for, like, was in the Senate. And I, I guess maybe it ended up not going so well. I mean, I think by this time, um, Stevens would, was a Democrat. Because he, had, he was originally a Whig, just like his friend, uh, Robert Toombs. And I think I've mentioned this before. He and, uh, Stevens and Toombs were friends, but they were on opposite sides of the Georgia Secession Convention. Uh, Stevens was against, voted against secession, while Toombs voted for secession. But ideologically, they were the same. They were both unionists. And not, not necessarily the strongest on states' rights, being Whigs. Um, but they were against um, agitation of the slavery issue, um, which I guess is different from Thomas Hart Benton's agitation on the well, like view on the slavery issue. He he was fine with it being restricted. Honestly, same thing kind of with Zachary Taylor. He was not, he, he may have been a Southern slave owner, but he didn't, he didn't want to benefit his section over the, the North. And of course, like eventually, um, Remini says that Douglas, Pierce, Buchanan, and Fillmore were not strong enough to keep the country together after the Compromise of 1850. But it gave, like, after the Compromise of 1850, it gave the North enough time to find a good leader for for the Union, and that was Abraham Lincoln or something. Like, I don't know, Remini is certainly a consolidationist. Like, that's that's where his his, uh, heart seemed to lie in this book. A Unionist, not not too much a states' rights guy, even though he does cite how Calhoun believed that these that the United States was a was a confederacy of sovereign and independent states, free sovereign and independent states. But uh, let's talk about uh, current events. So in Canada, I guess. So, um, Candace Malcolm, she had a YouTube video. Video like she's. From True North, like this is one of those non-mainstream um, media platforms, news platforms. They're you know conservative leaning. She's the leader, I guess, the founder, and she talked about how it was useless to have this French debate because 
it's pandering of this pandering to Quebec because Quebec doesn't have the same values as as uh, as the as the rest of Canada, uh, and especially the Conservative Party. Um, they voted for Mulroney because he was a Quebecer, but they didn't vote for Charest because even though Charest was a Quebecer, so was Gilles Deceppe from the Bloc Québécois, and so was Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Um, so, and they didn't vote for Harper, they didn't vote for Clark, <laughs> in back when Clark was prime minister, like 79 and 80, and then also in 2000, when he was the leader of the PCs who were dying before the merger. But that's not where, like, the, the values are for the people of Quebec. And I'm glad that she re recognized that. And when it came, she was talking about the French debate, and when it came to, like, uh, the bill in Quebec about banning uh, religious symbols for public servants, um, which is not really controversial. It's supported by the majority of Quebecers. All of the candidates, including Jean Charest, apparently, were against that bill. And I remember Scotch Atchison, he said like to Alexa Lavoie from The Rebel that it was he was against it because of minority rights, but using heavy-handed from the central government is not minority rights. This is not going to help. This is, this reminds me of the left during the 50s and the 60s want to clamp down on civil rights because of like you know the minorities, the blacks in those segregationist states. But you're forgetting that if you, you use heavy-handedness from the center, heavy-handedness from the center is going to come back and bite you. And then um, when your enemies take control of the center so the the solution to minority rights is to decentralize and then you know move with your feet not that you can move out of canada if you're uh unjabbed like recently like yesterday the liberals ndp and the bloc voted against the conservative motion to lift the travel restrictions on the unvaccinated so there's uh you can't really move out with with your feet. And then, of course, Trudeau uh, issues a, like a, a handgun ban. He like, prohibits the buying, the selling, and like exchanging of handguns. And I don't remember the exact... I didn't read the exact bill, but he, he said that he's not targeting law-abiding gun owners, which is a bunch of nonsense. And then the Americans I saw on social media were saying, well, that... That cannot be us. We we cannot allow this to happen to us. And I know there was this, a shooting recently in Texas in Uvalde, or I don't know how to pronounce that name, some town in Texas or city. And of course, after that, people are advocating for more gun control, like Beto O'Rourke. Ah, man, it's uh, it's crazy. Um, certainly my values are in line with you know the south or even the the red midwest of the united states um but you know i'm not gonna move there i can't move there <laughs> not with joe biden being president and 
him blocking unvaccinated people from entering. And it's so funny. Um, unvaccinated people, Ukrainians can't can't enter Canada or can't take a plane to Canada, but or have more freedom than more freedom to move than vaccinated Canadians. It's so crazy. Um, and I remember uh, there's also the the you the UCP leadership race to talk about. Um, so the two confirmed people in it were the current MLA Brian Jean and and f- former MLA Wilds uh Daniel Smith, both of whom are are uh, former Wild Rose leaders of the opposition. People don't trust Danielle Smith because she made the mistake of joining the PCs at the time and like crossing the floor and uh, really damaged both parties and allowed. But it wasn't clear that that uh, Rachel Notley's NDP would consolidate the left because sometimes you know the the uh, the Alberta Liberals would be. Where we're still like a, a force on the left in Alberta, and now now they're gone. Now, uh, Rachel Notley has a complete grasp on the left in Canada, uh, in Alberta, and people think that if if you don't get a good leader in Alberta, and that the the Wild Rose Independence Party is going to split the vote, uh, particularly, and it, and it's going to hurt in Calgary because Rachel Notley has Edmonton locked up. There's only one guy, one MLA in, in Edmonton who's a conservative, and that's uh, Casey Madu. But Calgary is where the, the power is, where the, the balance of power is, because the rural areas on their own even uh, may be strongly conservative, but they're not going to form a majority, not without at least Calgary. Edmonton plus Calgary is just like enough power because there's so many people in Edmonton and Calgary that's why Edmonton plus Calgary has the majority of the seats and Edmonton's not a place for the conservatives anymore so you have Calgary left and if they don't pick a good leader like a leader who's who is going to appeal to the people in Calgary then this is um like and not and like they won't lose too many votes from the Wild Rose Independence Party of Alberta. Um, then they should be able to hang on to power as long as yeah, as long as not too many votes in Calgary split off. But at least that's how I see it. Or it may be more complicated than that. There are some other municip- like urban municipalities in Calgary that may also be in danger of vote splitting from the Wild Rose Independence Party. But um, who knows? Like I know Kian Bexty from the Counter Signal, formerly from the Rebel. He said that if he that he would buy a UCP membership if they got a separatist, and then also would campaign on you know gun gun rights. I mean, gun. I don't think gun rights are particularly special. They're just property, right? Just like everything else, and but. It's just that the gun is very power, very important and very powerful property, you could say. 
Um, as Mao Zedong, the said, who was the the chairman of the Communist Party of China a long time ago, the political power comes from the bar the barrel of the gun. Um, and then let's talk about um last thing I guess we can talk about is the the election the Ontario election is tomorrow and I'm hoping New Blue gets some gets a lot of votes um the uh people think that Doug Ford has the election locked up and it's because the left is split between the NDP and the Liberals. <laughs> this must be some sick world in which cons can only win because the two major left-wing parties have split up. And then there's another split with the Green Party. Well, a smaller like, split. So, like, this is some really messed up stuff. But Doug Ford has really, you know, he locked down and then he promised not to introduce vaccine passports, saying it would create a split society but he did it anyways and you know he's his famous phrase was Ontario is open for business after like after he got into power but he didn't no but he locked down really hard and then there's of course um you know CRT critical race theory and gender ideal and as well as gender ideal all gender ideology still in classrooms like this gender ideology was back from the McGinty win era but um crt was passed recently and was voted for by rick nichols and rick nichols supposedly is a social conservative but he also voted for in october 2017 he voted for the abortion bubble zones <laughs> and and uh, of course don't tell Derek if you tell Derek sloan that the leader of the ontario party He's not going to like that, but, you know, it's a, it's a shame that, that Derek is doing that. He, cause he doesn't like, he knows that Jim and Belinda have been working on the new blue for a long time, but for over a year and a half, but that's still, well, yeah, about a year and a half, but he's still like in near at the beginning of 2022, he still starts he decides to lead another party, and then Jim joked he he might run for UCP leadership after this because he was in Alberta. Um, when things don't go the way he wants in on the Ontario party, I know that Roger Stone supports the Ontario party. I I'm not sure why. Like if Roger Stone actually knew about new how New Blue was actually spent a lot of time and this, people spent a lot of resources and stuff to get. Then, um, to become like the new right, then in Ontario, then maybe Roger Stone would have thought differently. But you know, Derek Stone's unstable, and who knows what he's gonna do afterwards. But there you have it. Um, I'm I'm hoping that there will be that Alberta will choose a strong premier, like leader of the Conservative Party. And later, a stronger check on Justin Trudeau. Because after all, they did vote. Like, the, there was a referendum on equalization to remove equalization. So there needs to be 
something that they need to do, like equalizations when the, like basically the rich provinces send tax money to the poor provinces. Essentially, that's equalization, and it's unfortunate it's in our constitution, but uh, it needs to change. Like if not if not completely destroyed, at least it the formula needs to be less generous, so so that the eastern provinces which are poor, and, and then like the Atlantic and Quebec. Hopefully, they have more incentive to develop their own resources. Like, should the formula be changed? But anyways, um, thanks for listening. I I hope that uh, things will be better later this year in the future. But uh, we'll see. We'll see after this election. We'll see um, after the UCP election. Um, but thank you for watching, everyone. Uh, this has been Canadian Meets the South.